Hello, everybody. Welcome to the State of Mind podcast, where we create space for conversations about mental health that change lives. We want people to learn that they're empowered by their experience, not inhibited. My name is Mike Stroh. I'm a psychotherapist and the founder of Starts With Me, a consultancy that specializes in K-12 education and workplace mental health. I'm someone who's lived through a variety of mental health, illness, and addiction challenges, and I've dedicated my life to helping people reduce their suffering and to promote their innate capacity for well-being. And on this podcast, we are trying to do that through conversations with interesting, inspiring people. And on today's episode, I am speaking with John Scott, who spent many years in wealth management in the corporate world and was quite successful in that endeavor. And he more recently had what some might call a spiritual awakening and he recognized certain things about his life experience were not conducive to his well-being. And so on the episode today, we're going to talk a lot about that process and, and what he's up to now. And also, John is an incredible human in the, in the sense, in many senses, but in particular in his adventures. So he holds the Canadian and world records for swim crossings. For Lake Ontario, 52 kilometers. First, he's the first person to swim from Christian Island to Collingwood. And he has mentioned and coached a lot of athletes on big open water crossings. He's climbed to Mount Kilimanjaro and Mount Kenya, and he's completed two dog sledding trips in the Canadian Arctic. Unbelievable. So I think John's going to share a lot of wonderful things about what's allowed him to perform and also how he navigated a big shift in his life into perhaps a more holistic, broader sense of taking care of himself and what it means to live a full and meaningful life. So without further ado, I bring you John Scott. Hi, John. Thank you so much for being here. As I always say, I like, or I think it's best that the guests introduce themselves in their own words. So can you please tell people a little bit about yourself and, and what you're up to and how you got to where you are today? Great. Well, uh, Mike, it's um, really nice to be here with you. And thank you for the chance to say a few words. Uh, my name is John Scott. I was born in Toronto and uh, grew up uh, with three other three siblings and uh, spent a lot of time at a cottage um, on the lake. So I learned early to enjoy the water. That was water became a really important part of my life. Um, moving along in high school, regular stuff, some university and uh, um, my swimming led me to uh, some open water swimming. And that um, is a whole other story and maybe a podcast if I am even honored to be back. But uh, I um, ended up swimming across Lake Ontario a couple of times. I have uh, the world record for swimming across Lake Ontario, which is a 51 kilometer swim. Uh, so I feel pretty proud about that effort. And um, that led me into doing some work with Special Olympics and doing some work is a bit of an understatement because I 
was chairman of the 1997 Special Olympics World Winter Games, which is a huge uh, event and really successful and an enormous, wonderful team put that together. Um, my work life was, uh, was great, I had a great career, although part of why I'm here, I think, Mike, is um, I thought that I was uh, supposed to be the best dad, the most best husband, the best manager of work, and the best son to my dad. And that was a bit of a crushing experience at the end because it, it was a lot of weight and that led to some health issues where I just really wasn't looking after myself. And um, my career was largely in the wealth management business as a manager largely in that uh, time. Um, so yeah, um, great childhood in Toronto. Uh, swimming was a big part of it, career in wealth management, uh, long distance swimming, Special Olympics. And um, what I do now is I have a business I call Our Human Capital, which is um, a brand, I guess, to help bring voice to how we can optimize our unique human resources for the highest good of all, I guess. Mm. And um, there's certain ways that we can uh, be a little bit better from wherever we are. So that's maybe the most succinct introduction I could, I could do at this point, if, if that works. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That's great. I think I'm, I'm enamored in some sense by people like yourself who accomplish these remarkable feats. And I think what's hard to understand or see what is what goes on behind the scenes of those accomplishments. And I'm maybe just curious where, well, the, the psychologist in me wants to know what birth order you were and what leads, what led to the determination to do those kind of things. But I, I guess I'm just maybe curious, were you kind of always driven to compete or to push yourself or to, or, or did that maybe come out of, I guess, yeah, that's the question. What, how did that come about this mm. sort of, uh, what do they call a, like elite long distance ath athlete? How did that all emerge? Well, that's a, a pretty good question as I'm slightly, um, as I'm thinking about how to respond, I guess to cut to the chase, <laughs> um, part of um, we all have certain wiring, I guess, from environments, from situations that come up through our lives, particularly childhood. And um, I guess I, I'm, I think I'm going to say this. <laughs> I, I think part of my my motivation was that um, I don't remember my dad ever saying. Um, Hey, that was a good job. And consequently, I was think I think I was always looking for some kind of acknowledgement that whatever I did was was okay or good enough. So as the third born of four, I don't know if that matters to you or the audience, but um, I always felt I had to do something pretty good. And uh, so in my swimming, I worked really hard and I accomplished a lot in my, my age group swimming, um, made some teams um, internationally, which was great. 
Um, but as things evolved, I kept thinking I've got to be the best, uh, you know, for some reason, I've got to be the best dad. I've got to be the best husband. I've got to be the best son. And I got to be the best guy at work, as I mentioned earlier. And when I did these lake swims, you know, I, I helped somebody, uh, uh, tempt one or he, he was successful. And because he did, it, I thought, boy, if he could do it, maybe I could do it. So it's sort of a motivation that some people have, you know, somebody does something, wow, maybe I can do it. It's like almost permission. Uh, and, uh, you know, honestly, Mike, I thought, yeah, he, he did it. So maybe I can do it. And then the next thought was, well, okay, well, I'll just break the world record then. Because that just <laughs> seems like, well, if I'm going to do it, I might as well break the world record. And then when I was chairman of the Special Olympic Games, my private little motivation uh, uh, narrative was these will be the best games in history. So in fact, um, I did break the world record and um, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who is the, her and her husband, um, Sergeant Shriver were basically the figureheads of Special Olympics International and Eunice Kennedy Shriver said to me one time, at the end of the games, these were the best games ever. Hmm. So, um, you know, that, that worked. Um, but with a busy life and um, family and responsibilities at work and mortgage and all these things, it just became too much to try to be um, the best at all these other things uh, without being the best for me. And that was a really critical learning for me that uh, I just couldn't sustain that effort um, in these other areas of my life uh, without being um, caring of myself in my well-being. So um, that was a bit of psychological <laughs> um, uh, sort of uh, drama or whatever that you pulled out of me but that's kind of uh, some of the stuff that I thought about is like like why couldn't I just swim across the lake and who cares about the time but that wasn't just wasn't part of my wiring I wanted to break a record yeah and I did so that was great <laughs> yeah it is amazing I think I ask I want to kind of keep pulling on those that thread a bit is and, and maybe you maybe you sort of crossed a threshold at some point, which I think you're just describing between the sort of internal narrative sense of motivation. So I think some people are more driven in that sense than others, but I'm going to do the best. I'm going to be the best, et cetera. And that's a big source of motivation. And then... I think for some people that generally contains a balanced approach, or maybe it doesn't, I don't know. Uh, and then at some point for a lot of people, whatever it is their endeavor is, that becomes unhelpful or, or a detriment to their well-being in some sense. And, and was there a particular point for you, or maybe you could explain, just reflect on that when when that superhuman drive that you had to be the, the performance how that balance changed or like what happened that it started to become unhelpful or maybe it was i don't know those are kind of the thoughts i'm having yeah well those are good thoughts um 
and helpful to, 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 yeah, to explore this further. Well, I guess I, uh, you know, through my sporting experience, I did see the success in that performance mindset. Uh, I think what happened oddly was when I got married, started having kids and um, somehow I forgot because just stepping back a bit, when I swam, I knew that I had to rest. I knew that I had to eat well. I knew that I had to have the right mindset. I knew that I had to exercise. So four things that I really think a lot about, which I'll get to a little bit later are um, rest, fuel, movement, and mindset like, are just four critical areas for all of us to attend to. And it was almost like I forgot some of the lessons I'd learned. Um, work was busy. It was hectic. It was, you know, I won't go into it, but it was, it was pretty crazy. The one part of my career, a uh, difficult office, very difficult office and uh, trying to be my best. And then I'm one day, my wife calls me and says at eight o'clock at night and says, Hey, John, Sarah, my, our, our firstborn just walked, you know, and I'm thinking like, that's amazing. Wow. That's so great. And then I realized I looked around realized where I was, which wasn't in our living room. And um, I just sank under my desk with my hands over my face thinking, what am I doing? So there were some clues that I was off track. It's like, there's a formula and you're off formula and, or I was off formula. And uh, I had these clues, these messages, like I was getting this real time instant feedback from my organism, from the system saying, you know, you're not on, you, this isn't going to work or you're like little, uh, you know, little signals. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, to, to move, move this along, Mike, um, I denied it all for a while, um, trying to be the best at work, trying to be the best, trying to be all this stuff, trying, trying, trying. People would say, hey, how are you doing today, John? I said, oh, great, yeah, good. Then I'd go in my office, close the door, and just sit with a massive migraine for a while. <laughs> and uh, so there were lots of, plenty of signals. Uh, so I guess this ended up to be burnout. I didn't really realize or want to even admit it at the time because I thought I was a tough guy. Like, I don't need the sleep that other people need because I've swam lakes. I'm very fit. I'm very healthy. I climbed a couple mountains. I don't need to, you know, I don't need to sleep like, uh, you know, people sleep a lot, whatever. So I thought I was, you know, somewhat, <laughs> somewhat different or exempt from self-care and uh, it was such an illusion. Um, so really the story that I've told time and uh, told to people and I'm writing about is pretty profound for me privately, frankly, where one day I woke up, it was June 28th, 2010, and I opened my journal on my phone, my app, and I was gonna start writing about all the frustrating, annoying, hard things in my life, which I felt there were many, and uh, which was really getting me down. And, uh, I looked at it and I just thought, I just can't do this anymore. There, there must be a better way to do life than this. 
because I was unhappy. I was stressed out. I was, I was really in a bad state. One night I remember sitting on the edge of my bed, sleeping in the basement because I, I don't know, just again, there's connect disconnection. That was part of it, like disconnection from my wife. And I sat on the edge of my bed, Mike, and I thought there was a 50% chance I was going to have a heart attack that night. And, you know, I say that out loud to you and whoever's listening. And I think that sounds pretty goofy, John, like really, but that was what I felt like. I felt like I was going to have a heart attack. I went to bed and got up and went to work early and work late again, just Mm -hmm. so um, unrequired of us. And uh, anyways, I sat there on that morning and I just can't do it anymore. So I, so there's gotta be a different way. A better way and I started a new journal entry heading that I called my magical moments and you know I might have a cry here and that's okay with me um, but I sat there and I wrote my first entry about spending some time with my youngest daughter putting her to bed instead of freaking out I became present thinking about how wonderful it was to just be with her and snuggle and read a story and laugh and giggle. And and I allowed myself to really be fully into that experience instead of freaking out about all the other things. That was my first entry. And um, I wrote in that journal every day, and I still do. I've got like hundreds of entries. And um, within three weeks, I was feeling better. (laughs) Three weeks, I started to think, um, wow, that's a beautiful sunset or wow, that was a great, like five minutes of that meeting in an hour long meeting, which the rest was very difficult. Those five minutes, I did a good job and I added value and I found myself more easily coming to these things that were good in my life. And that was the start of a profound shift that I just wish many people could make sure they dwell on the wonderful things in their lives. And if they think there aren't any, then that's not a reality. That's just a kind of a perverted perspective that comes from, I think, not caring for ourselves as much as we ought to. I'm going to pause there because that's, it was a bit of a long answer to your question. No, it was wonderful too. And I, I think when I first spoke to you uh, in advance of this conversation, when you were sharing that moment or that process of beginning to write that journal, um, as I did now, sort of was welled with positive emotion, kind of magical moments and, May a question I always reflect on, not in search of an answer, but just to reflect on is, and you describe some of the things, but how or the the I don't know what the word is and 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 what happens in advance of moments like that for people where that sort of intense paradigm shift happens. Um, 
you described a bunch of them in that moment of sort of being aware that you're going to have a heart attack or you're, you know, you have a 50, 50 chance of something of a heart attack happening. Um, Because I think partly people often assume there's a, a quick fix or, or what do I have to do to change my life or, or how, do, how, if you were to give people one word of advice, you know, how do they, how do they just shift or how do they change? Um, so maybe, I guess you did a good job of describing all the things that led up to that. Um, did you have anyone kind of giving you feedback that you weren't taking care of yourself or, or how, how did you come to that kind of realization? Yeah. Um, no, I didn't have any feedback externally. Um, but what comes to mind is something that I've written a little bit about and it's uh, listening and what I mean by that is, you know, I can listen to you and answer your questions and people I hope will listen to this or listen to loved ones and really listen. I think we're not very good. At least I was not very good at all, about listening to myself or listening to um, what was happening inside me. And what occurs to me, Mike, is I remember coming down to the kitchen one morning and like we live five minute walk from the school, but of course that doesn't matter. We're going to be late. Right. It's just, madness so every morning felt like madness the kids were late they're not eating properly this is you know years ago and i'm kind of come down and freaking out because i got to go to work and it's all about me and whatever and so i remember coming to the kitchen and i just i don't know if i yelled i'm not really a yeller but maybe i yelled i don't want this anymore and mm. A few days later, I was thinking about that. And I don't think I was, I don't think I was really saying, I don't, you know, want that. I don't want this. Like, I don't want what was happening to me anymore. And I remember thinking about that thing. Wow, that, that was like a voice <laughs> coming out saying, you know, John, like, you know, the body basically saying, you know, Gabor Mete, who's like an enormous um, voice in, in the world of healing and trauma wrote a book called when the body says no. And, you know, you read the book, it's a great book, but the title, you know, suffices, right? Like <laughs> my body was saying no on so many levels. <laughs> and I think that was the voice saying, I don't want this anymore. And thought, wait, who said that? That was my body. Right. And, uh, so there were some wake-up calls that kind of got my attention. Um, the other thing which I realized or realized sadly at the time was like prolonged stress actually can uh, have a physical manifestation. I remember walking to the subways like 1500 meters, maybe two kilometers. I had to stop halfway one time because I was racked with physical pain. I sat in a bench like, uh, you know, the things we do to ourselves are inhumane, right? Sometimes. Yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, so there was a few warnings, internal warnings, I would say, not external. Nobody ever said to me, 
hey, John, you should take care of yourself. And uh, frankly, like, I'm a goofy guy, like many, you know, like, I don't exp didn't express, I didn't tell my wife that I was, hey, hey, Lindsay, I'm really having a tough time. <laughs> you know, can you offer me some advice, you know, or can I cry on your shoulder? I thought, I can't tell her that I'm losing it. <laughs> because I thought, like, what, she's gonna not love me anymore, or something, just madness. So, you know, of course, she would love me more if I was telling her the truth and and wanted her help and it would be an even better connection right it's just so it was all internal and the shift for me was an internal thing i just like i just can't do it anymore there has to be a different way this it can't be right i guess the other thought is i can't be right <laughs> can't be right that we as like a species or an organism or whatever way you want to look at it are meant to like be unhappy mm. or stressed all the time or have health issues because like it doesn't make sense logically that we are one of the best surviving species in the history of this world and every single thing in evolution has led to our success so all the success elements every single success element is built in but like having health issues and, and headaches and stuff intestinal problems isn't an evolutionarily sur like survival like it's that's off right happiness is on so i feel great i feel inspired i feel like i can love something i love myself like that is unlimited power that's mm. what evolution is and uh in my view and i had to get back to that like i was just not happy and one little anecdote was I remember going into my daughter's room, my middle daughter. She was sitting on the wrong end of her bed. <laughs> I was trying to get her to bed. She wasn't, she was sitting at the, the foot end of it. And I said, you got to go to bed. I don't want to go to bed. And I lost it. And, and uh, you know, I couldn't see the magic right in front of me. I couldn't see, it was the, you know, the stress created this distance or fog in the, between she and I, I couldn't, I was so far away from happy. I couldn't see the magic right in front of me. Like my daughter, a human being, unbelievable. Now I look at them every day and I just am blown away, but um, with gratitude and everything. But at the time I was so far away from feeling good <laughs> that I couldn't see her. And uh, one day she said, dad, are you happy? And I lied to her, Mike. <laughs> Yeah, I'm happy. Sure, I'm happy, honey. No, I wasn't very happy. I was uh, happy sometimes, but we all deserve to be happy as much as we possibly can be. And there's a route to that. And uh, we ought to, we owe it to ourselves and those we love to find it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so much. I don't know, uh, richness, I guess, is the word that comes to mind from all the things you were just saying. The, I'm curious, the, I want to get to the parenting piece there of how our children can be some sort of a mirror for us or give us opportunities to, to open up to these things. The, you were describing sort of walking to work and having to sit down. I just want one question 
about your, uh, I guess, experience of being a high-performing athlete, did that in some sense, I guess, influence the sort of perspective of like, I just, I, I, I have to keep going or uh, if, if I recognize my body telling me no, then that's a sign that I'm not going to win or I'm not going to keep going. Um, yeah. Was there something there? That's a uh, very thoughtful question. It's um, well, I, when I swam competitively, I worked pretty hard and I, you know, went beyond discomfort lots of times. And uh, I, at the peak of my swimming career, I was swimming 11 workouts a week in the pool. Then I do dry land stuff on top of that. So I was pretty used to um, physical effort. And, and I think I thought, <laughs> I think I thought that, yeah, this stuff is just part of the, you know, part of it, right? I just thought that it was, hey, I'm physically, you know, in discomfort and I have some health issues and I somehow maneuvered in my mind that, you know, it's just like the training. If I, if I have to, if I want to swim fast, then I got to work hard and uh, it's going to hurt a bit. And, uh, but then I'll swim fast and, but that's a, to me, uh, you know, that's a faulty, faulty logic. Uh, and certainly in my experience with kind of denying those physical things, because we can be high performers without the, uh, you know, without that discomfort, hmm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there seems to be a shift in athletics in some sense to opening up to these more balanced internal states in relationship to the performance, which seems to be super cool and probably something that your gifts and experience could probably be so helpful to athletes. Um, that's another, my mind pulling me in that direction, but I wanted to, to go back to this thing around the parenting. Cause I think your insight and I think also like humility that comes from these experiences to notice. I think it's so hard for parents because our relationship with our kids is obviously our most vulnerable and intimate one to recognize or not even to recognize, to be willing to recognize when we are in our automatic, perhaps unhelpful patterns of of re reacting to situations. And, you know, the example of you coming down that morning and saying, I don't want this anymore, or, or even because we do it all the time, or at least I do. And I know many parents do there there's a operational procedure that needs to happen right now, right? Brush the teeth, go to bed, get out the door, whatever it is. 
Right. And we get stuck in that rigid framework and everything that, at least this is really how it works for me. Anything that deviates from this operation that must happen right now is bad and wrong. And I'm going to use anger. I'm going to use yeah. consequences. I'm going to, whatever kind of robotic response that has to happen there. I'm going to use that. And because I got to get it done. And of course there are times in life where we do need to complete those operational tasks and get out the door, whatever it is. Yeah. But that I think is so, uh, if you were to put it at a hundred, you know, that importance and necessity is probably 10, maybe 20% of the time, right. uh, or, or maybe we just delude ourselves into thinking that, but those other moments where even in the midst of the operational task of getting out the door and brushing teeth and going to bed, there's space or surrender. I think that's a nice word to just, Oh yes, these things have to happen, but I'm human. My child's a human. And we have a relationship here that if tended to contributes to all these other positive experiences, um, and it's really hard. I think when people, I, I guess it's just hard to be open to that or something like that. Um, and, and helping each other and just talking about it now in some sense, I think is so helpful for people just to be aware of this space they might not notice. Or for those of us that are aware of it, to be reminded that it's always available to us and that however it is that we can enter it or open to it or surrender to it. Right. That's wonderful. And so maybe how about, how does that work for you now? Maybe, or, or how, do, how are you kind of relating to those moments? Well, that's a great question. It's, um, I, I'm... Yeah, you're very good at um, getting to some really good, good, uh, you know, good material. Um, because I think what you just talked about resonates a ton for me. So, a couple of examples. Um, we were lucky to go away lots of weekends to a, a place up north, and uh, you know, in this sort of. Sometimes I think there's two parts of my life. One is you know the madness, and then the magical. <laughs> like, um, but. Um, like the pre-magical, um, which I want to touch on a little more deeply, I, you know, or maybe I will here just to add some context, yeah. but um, I used to think, okay, girls, you know, hey, we've got to leave at six o'clock to the cottage, right? Like, that's the plan. Everybody's got to, you know, and it would never happen. I would freak out, like, just, I couldn't, you know, like, <laughs> seemed it seemed real and important like this imperative has to happen like 100 of the time like we got to go at the door now it's like there's a fire or something there's no fire there's you know it didn't matter like leave it six leave it six it didn't really matter but it felt like it mattered or you know uh when a kid's spilling some orange juice on the counter you know while we're getting ready for they just like lost it oh my god what's the, you know what's the matter with you you can't even pour your orange juice <laughs> like such silly stuff that sounds it seems so like seems so important and and uh you know um but you know people spill orange juice right like uh, so what 
right? <laughs> and uh, there's a cereal, you know, dogs are going to eat it, no big deal. And uh, the cottage, like, so we leave at seven. It's not so, but I think, I think, like, I feel like going slightly into science here, but because basically when I woke up that day, I, you know, I won't go into too much detail, but basically I started looking at rest because my sleep was shot. And then I looked at um, my diet because as it happened, I wasn't eating enough protein. So I was exhausted all the time. So that I, you know, I fixed those two things, started to feel better and exercise was okay. But the mindset, so here, I guess here's where I want to say something that hopefully will help is I started to um, investigate mindfulness meditation as one element. I was thinking about thoughts and what I dwell on and really matters, right? Like it's like your brain is this pilot, which is driving the show. And uh, if you don't treat your brain right, like it's pretty wild where it's going to take you and uh, not always good places. So my point, I guess, Mike, is that, you know, the science like this uh, amygdala is where emotional reactivity and memory lie. And so, you know, you just get triggered, like um, in, in this in this ground of, you know, fatigue and, and to-do lists and all this stuff. Got to get this done now. And I'm freaking and triggered. Boom. Like it's just automatic. Go right to reactivity. Um, you know, get out of, get it back into bed or, you know, get to school or you have each your cereal and just triggers, triggers, triggers and it all. And we can't, you know, it's just running the show then. And uh, so anyways, so mindfulness meditation, like you could pull up truckloads of research if somebody need the research, but um, basically mindfulness meditation, the practice of paying attention is no different than going to the gym and doing some wrist curls or push-ups or developing a new habit. Um, the practice of mindfulness meditation, usually the, the sort of paying attention to the breath is the most common thing. Like here's the reality. It, it, it trains the prefrontal cortex where self-regulation is and it depowers the amygdala. So what happens is if you practice mindfulness meditation, um, you're depowering that that trigger, that amygdala. Like you're you're just moving the taking your foot off that that accelerator, and you're you're allowing. So so it creates this pause, right? So you know the juice spills over. And honestly, you know, I I don't think I really freak out anymore. Like I just hey, like it is it is what it is. Oh, the juice fell over. Well yesterday you wouldn't believe what i did like yesterday i stubbed my toe or I, you know it's just human we're all like common humanity right even kids we got to leave at six we don't leave at six well because somebody was late or you gotta have a sandwich it's like so this this pause gets created and that's what happened to me this sort of pause where i became more empowered to notice like more trained up to notice to be aware, oh, this just happened. How am I going to react to this? Am I going to freak out or am I going to say, well, that's okay. Don't worry about the orange juice. You know, don't worry. So we're late five minutes to school. Like, 
you know, uh, it's like grade three, like who cares, right? Um, so this pause allows for this sort of choice of how to react, which is, I think what I really want to say is a very long answer back to your point is, if we can build some notice, some awareness, then we have more ability to choose and we can make better choices. And then that's way better for everybody. Yeah, no, that's wonderful journey sort of <laughs> to, to go with you on that journey. Um, I think that's actually a great, as they say, segue into um, maybe you can kind of share how all the stuff we've talked about and, and maybe also your, your journal, the magical moments journal and how that's contributed to your current sort of state of well-being and, and practice. Um, also you are, you're going to publish it as far as I know. And, and it's just so beautiful when, again, when you were telling me in the, in our previous conversation to in advance of this just it was so inspiring to hear that so maybe just kind of if you can walk us through that journal and how that's going and then also uh maybe i'll remind i'll remember to ask you but the you mentioned those sort of four pillars of of well-being or self-care and etc so yeah let's kind of go into that and there's a bit of background noise here so i'm going to be muting my microphone every now and again so okay yeah All right okay um, well, good. Thank you for um, those good questions. Um, the journal, thanks for asking about that. And uh, I must say there's a little bit of mind chatter around that, like I say, magical moments journal, what? Like, but when I reveal that to people, like most people say, wow, that's kind of an interesting, that's, I like that, you know, I like that. And uh, people like magic. And there is like, one of the quotes I have in there that's from me is I've got about 40, 40 quotes in the book and uh, in the journal. One of them's for me, which is I was walking to school one day with my daughter, you know, years ago, she was four, maybe, I don't know. And she says, daddy, are fairies for real life? And I said, yeah, honey, fairies are magic and magic is real. And, um, you know, we love magic, right? And I think there's these things that we all, we, like, there's no, if you go into a science, uh, you go to university, you know, or whatever, like, there's no no science of magic, or there's no, uh, um, can't prove it, maybe, but we all, we all have these experience of these magical moments where you see a sunrise, and you're just in a state of awe, or, or you're in love, and you look into your partner's eyes and you just like wow right you can see your whole life uh together in their eyes or you know nature and uh anyways so so the journal is uh it's meant to be for the person it's not really about me so much as well i guess in a way it's pretty much what i went through so it's uh, there's there's guidance um, each day. There's a bit of a story about really the background of it. Um, I have uh, some science in there, like the science of gratitude, science of compassion, science of kindness, uh, which I think are all pretty magical. Um, and uh, there's some opportunities to reflect and and really 
like on the front cover, it's uh, right now it says, you know, my magical journal, my magical moments journal. And then below that it says it's time to feel good. And um, the most important thing is, I think, is to feel good and uh, feel happy. And so really my hope is that people who might choose to buy this um, find their way through this just to um, feel good about the things, the many things that in their lives that are really good. And, and you can say magical, right? Like, wow, that somebody, somebody did a little act of kindness to me the other day or witnessed something. And that was really special. That was really, uh, and I guess, you know, with the pandemic, it's been a hard, hard, hard time for many people. And um, it's not really intended to, it's not coming out because of that necessarily, but it's just, um, it may help some people sort of focus on that. And I guess one element which I'll highlight, uh, and, and I think you talked about the, this awakening. Um, I was up north uh, one morning um, a few years ago and uh, with my dog early one morning and I was, walking along this trail and I saw this bird on a branch just standing sitting on a branch you know and I, I kind of was mesmerized by this beautiful little bird I stopped and I watched this bird and then um it, you know it opened it opens it opened its wings and the branch sort of sort of bent and under its weight and it flew away and uh you know I don't know if this sounds crazy I don't really care I guess but um I was blown away, right? Like, wait a minute, this bird just flew away, right? Like evolution creating this beautiful little thing that could fly. Went back to the house, you know, I burst in like a kid there and I go, girls, you wouldn't believe what I just saw. And they go, dad, what'd you see? <laughs> right? I, saw, I just saw a bird fly. Like, and really what I meant was I saw it really, I really saw it. I mean, I've been in nature, see birds around, but honestly, part of this journey and the mindfulness of being aware of, I don't think I'd really ever seen such a rich perspective on nature as I had that moment. And it was because I was um, seeking to find more awareness and uh so it's, it's, it's that, right? Finding things. Uh, so that's the journal. Um, I'm excited about it. I feel good about it, a little nervous, but I am publishing it. I'm not sure when it's going to be out, but hopefully in the next month or so. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I hope it'll be really helpful to people and fun and a magical journey. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it, it is such um I think my personal bias into climbing out of my own darkness in some sense was remembering to notice these sort of magical moments and attune myself to them more and more. And a couple of things, I think, to the, I don't know, science or the research or what we claim to know about these things is we have our negativity bias, which is sort of our evolutionary piece uh, to look out for danger and negative information because that's what's kept us alive. 
uh, and it was adaptive and it probably still is in a lot of ways, but I think we're also noticing that it's perhaps not so adaptive anymore because our, I, I like this framing of that ability to look for threats in our environment has now been turned inward to our self-concept, to our egos, to our relationships, to others. And so it's still doing its thing in terms of looking for threats, but it's not adaptive anymore. And so we're learning to notice it. And that's where the mindfulness I think is so helpful so that we can observe it, allow it to be there, let it go. And then we have that choice. You mentioned earlier, that space that opens up where we can choose something different or respond in a different way. And then the, I, I, I haven't read research on this, but you hear sort of mindfulness leaders, I don't know what else to call them, uh, talk about cherishing or um, yeah, cherishing is the word that savoring. That's the other word. Yeah. So, and that's those magical moments. And you mentioned that moment of seeing the bird for the, maybe not the first time, but in a particular way that where all these pieces come together, where it, it is magical in, in the deepest sense of, of the word. Um, and I think so much of our automatic thought processes and our delusions or illusions of need to just achieve and do things and attain things and become things gets in the way of us opening up to these magical moments. Um, Sam Harris, who's a meditation teacher, he has that uh, waking up app. I think he does a great job at teaching through an app, which is obviously a hard thing to do. Um, he he talks about, um, oh, I had it before. What is it? Um, I think, I don't know if he uses the word mystery or, but just to even think about like the human hand or just when we can kind of open up to the, oh, he uses mystery. The mysteriousness of reality is so profound. <clears throat> but I think we often try to rationalize it. Or, or we try to turn it into thoughts and that gets in the way of us opening to its magic. Um, and I think for people, how do we start attuning to, I got to my question. How did your, the practice of you writing in your magical moment journal help you attune to this sense, deeper sense of magic and, and, it's like a sense of well-being really, right? Or happiness or, or something. Maybe if you could kind of talk about how you cultivated that and continue to. Right, thanks. Yeah, so, um, well, I, I think cultivating is a good good word. It's um, intention and um, and focus. Like, like honestly, some days I'd look at it and say, okay, this is my job today. I've got to find some magical stuff from today. <laughs> And, you know, be a few days where I think, okay, well, can't think of anything. Okay, well, you know, yeah, okay, well, that, you know, there was something. Okay, so so I think there's this, again, this exercise, this attunement practice where just the um, spending a few minutes, 
paying attention to the focus of, of finding that magic and typing in or writing or even thinking about it helps to um, nourish that experience. And my understanding through science is that it takes about 12 seconds. Like if you sort of stay on something for 12 seconds, it tends to start to build this neural circuitry to the prefrontal cortex area. And so I think what was happening, which I didn't really realize, I didn't really even know what neuroplasticity was um, when I was doing this, but I think what was happening was I was um, reflecting on that experience. I was, I was nourishing that experience. I was exploring it. I was like recalling it. So that's, oh yeah, like last night I took, I put my daughter to bed and what happened? Oh yeah, that was cool. And that was, and, and I'm, and I'm recalling it. So I think that is like going to the gym and, um, you know, brain, uh, anyways, the brain gym, I guess. So uh, that's my best shot at what was happening. And then that became easier. And I remember, uh, I think I said three weeks, I, I, I think that's probably accurate that started to become easier like things would just sort of float into my mind instead of me looking for them and I you know there was a funny time I've said this and people laugh it's laughing is good so I'll say it but um, I was on a subway and this guy uh, beside me the subway stopped halfway between terminals and he starts oh this subway is bad i spent my taxes lousy subway in the world he's just like yelling and screaming this is awful and, and i look at him and without really being conscious like not even i looked at him i go that's very interesting that's an interesting comment and then i thought hmm i don't know like the way i look at it is a bunch of guys dug a hole in the earth and somebody designed a like a train to put in there so i can get to work easily like this is unbelievable, right? And this is just mind-blowing stuff. <laughs> and here's this guy with a whole other perspective and he's all freaked out and pissed off and mad at the world. And I'm sitting there giggling, thinking, I don't know, like I see this is pretty awesome. But um, these things were just sort of bubbling up after a while as if um, I've been to, to the gym regularly. And then one day I go in and I say, hey, well, I can... Yeah, I can do a lot of chin-ups here. Wow. You know, something was happening. And then I looked into what was that all about? And I discovered, you know, this idea the brain changes itself over our lifetime, depending on input and environment and neuroplasticity. Um, so that, that's pretty cool. So I investigated that and a bunch of other things. Yeah. Wow. And, and so what are, what were those other things and how did those lead you to where you are now with your, the consulting work that you're doing and, and what you're trying to bring to human beings? I know you have sort of a focus more on the workplace and, and on the environments that you used to work in or continue to work in, but yeah, how, how are you doing that now? And, and what are some of the things you're trying to do? Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Um, well, just, you know, backing up those those four things, you know, I investigated rest and I investigated and we need, like, you can't escape the requirement for adequate rest and 
um, you know, shorten your life if, if you think you can get away with a lot less sleep than so there's some real science around sleep. So, and there's science around diet and, 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 and exercise, you, you know, we're built to move. If, if, uh, if we were built to sit, sit in chairs all day and be sedentary, then we probably wouldn't be designed like this. So we, we need to move. And there's certain fundamental things that if we ignore, uh, it's a problem, but if we attend to, then we feel good. We're more resilient. We're more creative. We're more, you know, approachable, we're more, we're more open. Um, and then the mindset was the fourth one, which is a big one, I guess. So yeah, I, um, in, in all this, I, I didn't, you know, say till now, but I got let go from the company I was with after a long time. And that was um, upsetting and I had a settlement. And so I had some time and a bit of money. So I took a year and did a bunch of courses. I did a, a course called mindfulness-based stress reduction. It's all about just what it says, I guess, mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction. It's a beautiful handle. Um, and uh, I did a six-month program in positive psychology, did a course in emotional intelligence, um, search inside yourself, which is a fantastic program. Did a course out of uh, University of Berkeley called uh, Science of Happiness free course fantastic and uh did a took a went to a couple conferences on leadership compassionate leadership and uh so i guess all that sort of is building towards me thinking um i actually went back to work with a company for uh, almost two years which didn't work out and uh um wasn't really what i really wanted to do so uh, what i'm trying to do now bring to the world i guess is um this idea that um there's a formula to be happier and healthier. And, and that's something we should all strive for. So um, embedded in that is mindfulness. Um, and then these, these other areas. Um, I write a weekly letter uh, called Our Human Capital, which is designed to talk about various elements of how we can optimize ourselves, think, things to think about. Uh, I love writing. Um, I'm working on a book. I've got a program on sustainable performance that I am um, uh, hope to start running soon. Um, doing a bit of coaching and uh, I'm in some discussions with a company to do some leadership coaching and the mindful journal. So I really like the space of, uh, you know, particularly leadership. Um, I think there's a big opportunity. Um, my, my thoughts around leadership were fairly straightforward that when I, worked I tried to operate every day on the basis that people matter and I always was trying to be you know I wasn't perfect but I was trying to be aware that everybody matters and the way in which I deal with them matters and um, whoever they are right the biggest salesperson or the smallest or the assistant or the the cleaning person we all matter and uh, that served me pretty well um, and hopefully made an impact on others. But um, I think there's an opportunity in leadership to be more present, more aware, uh, bring some emotional intelligence to that role. Um, and, uh, and compassion, like compassion, as far as I'm concerned, compassion can be a work word. Like, you know, we're all, it's not different. Like 
home at work you know we're, we're at work we can be compassionate with people around the street or a friend but in their work you know it's oh works a lot of thing no it's they're all we're just human beings trying to make a go of it and uh compassion common humanity are so important to i think helping people feel engaged helping people feel present and, and purposeful and and being contributors and so so i love that space i'm trying to do more of that and uh you know frankly it's early stages I, i'm trying to build this business and um but i feel excited and confident that um they'll be doing more and uh adding value and impact awesome yeah i i think we also discussed this a bit last time or in our previous conversation what this idea around i guess the tension or maybe just the gap between our growing awareness that sort of the current model of i don't know uh daily nine to five work or nine to nine, six days a week of, of sort of this is, is not ideal to our species and how might that shift? And I think the more people pushing in that direction uh, will hopefully lead to kind of a, an, an awareness or an opening for more companies or just more people to realize the benefit actually i think i think it's also a, a common human thing to think change or by doing less we actually accomplish more it certainly is a paradoxical experience and one that's hard to open to and hopefully yeah the sort of work you're doing and and people in our world continues to to push in that direction I wanted actually one question I just have to ask you in this realm and maybe your experience in, in sort of finance and wealth management. It, it seems I remember taking, and I know we don't have much more time, but I can't help myself to ask you this is <laughs> I remember taking economics 101 or whatever in university and sort of the sim, of course it gets much more complicated, but just these simplistic uh, I don't know, equations or situations of how we, in, uh, I guess, present value of things. It just seems so simplistic. And your, your the word you use of human capital, is it possible? So I know on a balance sheet, you know, we have capital investments or capital machinery or whatever. Do you think it's at all possible, or maybe it's not? How might we incorporate human capital or well-being into these equations? And if we were able to do that, I don't know what might happen. Well, um, I think a lot of good things would happen. Um, I guess I would say when you think of capital in its normal sense, uh, machinery or uh, equipment and investments, and uh, typically think of return on what, what's the return on, am I going to get on that? And uh, so you make an investment, you buy some machinery. Um, so that's the common term. And 
my own investment capital? What return am I going to get on that? And how do I protect it and all that? Um, I think there's, there's definitely companies um, that understand that there is a, a real connection between uh, people feeling good at work and the return on those people uh, for the company. And um, like disengagement is another way is sort of a, a negative aspect of, of, of um, poor work cultures. And that's really expensive. People leave to train new people, um, you know, turnover and clients seeing the turnover and brand reputation, all these kinds of things. So disengagement and, you know, you pay somebody whatever they're paid, you know, a hundred thousand a year and, one person's disengaged, the other person's getting paid the same amount, and they're fully engaged. So it's, it's just, it's unfortunate. So I think um, when people, when companies, more and more companies, some certainly do, um, start to understand that there's a real connection between um, how we treat people at work and how we allow them to feel they matter and we support them and we acknowledge that stress is comes from the house and to work and comes from work to the house and, and, and how we can create environments that are respectful and diverse and, and, and also optimally performing. Right. And um, I think it's a huge lever to um, people feeling better. Like there's a book that I teared up uh, reading the, or it was an audio book I had in the car and I sort of tear up reading or listening to the, the front of it. It's called uh, Dying for a Paycheck, written by a guy in the States, um, Pfeiffer, I think. Um, I do, the, the degree to which there is suffering at work is so um, staggering. Um, a friend of mine's leaving a company shortly because she's been the victim of bullying. And at roughly my age, she says, this has been the worst year of my life because a bully has been allowed to not only exist, but get promoted and, and kind of thrive in all that ugliness. So um, this is a big topic <laughs> and, and an important topic and like people matter and, and why wouldn't you want to have people at work who just want to come in or, or get online and do the job because there's a purpose and they feel they matter and cared for and helped out. And, but you know, the typical model, at least in wealth management, frankly, was, Hey, we got the numbers up. Like we got the numbers up. What are you doing to pay my mortgage today? Like get going. And if you're not, uh, you're not doing it, you're out. You know, um, maybe they should be out, but maybe they shall also, maybe there's a, you know, way to, like I've seen lots of things that haven't been handled as well as they could. And I've seen things that have been handled very well. So um, we just, I think I want to be part of the team, so to speak, that helps people live better at work and uh, help leadership understand how they can make that happen. Yeah, that's great. I think to sort of tie it all together, at least to the best of my ability, which I think people like yourself who have the, I don't even know if it's possible for people 
the first thought is the fact that you have the trajectory and life experience of this journey that took you through the sort of superhuman uh, athletic performances and sort of adventures to the, I love how you quoted the Gabor Mate, um, the body, when the body says no, I think that's what it is, right? Um, and now the sort of journey to where you are today is the example of kind of how these processes go. And it's so nice sort of to one, to know you and this journey and, and for other people to see when we can see each other doing these things and we become living examples of them, I think those are always the best promotion tools. Um, there's a lovely saying in 12 steps, or it's not a saying, it's one of the traditions. Our public relations policy is based upon attraction rather than promotion. There's a second piece to that, but it's not important. And so, yeah, it's amazing to, to hear stories like yours. And I'm, I'm excited for you and for your book and, and sort of for all the work you're doing. And thank you for your time and, and sharing as honestly as you did. It's beautiful, magical. It's a magical moment. <laughs> Um, so yeah, anything else you maybe just want to add or, or suggest, encourage people to do, please? Well, first of all, I'm really grateful, uh, for the time with you, Mike, and, and, uh, you know, you're very skilled at asking, um, good questions and, uh, thoughtful questions. So I'm, uh, I just want to thank you for that. Um, well, I think we, uh, could all be a little less critical of ourselves. I think we could all be a little more caring of ourselves. Uh, we matter when we take care of ourselves. The ironic thing I learned, like the maybe the, the bullet point here is, um, I thought I had to be the best for everybody else, which didn't include me. And when I did include me, then I was better for everybody else actually. <laughs> so like I was happier and my happiness and, and you know, I remember sitting down with my daughters and apologizing to them about some of the things that happened, you know, the screaming dad and stuff. Um, but we're just better for ourselves and everybody else when we're in a good state of mind and we're resilient and we take care of ourselves. And I know some people out there might say, oh, I don't have time for that. You know what, that there is time, even little bits of time, like honestly, one or two breaths, just, I'm, you know, I'm freaking out and just, just a breath, one breath, one breath, like, you know, you're breathing and that can help. So everybody's got time for a real conscious breath during the day to help them settle and make good choices for themselves and others. And uh, so I wish everybody who's listening more calm, more focus and good health and um, to take very, very good care of themselves. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you, John. And I have to do my uh, bookends of please comment 
share this with everybody or anybody for those listening, get in touch with us at um, hello at startswithme.ca. Oh, and John, and just to share your uh, website info and et cetera with people, if they want to maybe sign up for your your weekly newsletter or just how they can find out more information about you, which will also be included in the show notes and when we publish it. But just if you could mention that now, that'd be great. Yeah, great. Thanks, Mike. Uh, my website, probably the easiest place to go is ourhumancapital.ca, ourhumancapital.ca. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And um, everybody have a great day. Yeah. Okay.